Cobram Estate is the most awarded Australian extra virgin olive oil. Let it be the hero when entertaining family and friends. Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil is fresh and full of flavour. Perfect for roasting, frying, baking, dressing salads and for dipping bread. Make your food taste even better with a little help from Cobram Estate. Premium quality, great tasting and a versatile healthy alternative. Buy in store at all major retailers. I have almost zero memories of both games, to be honest. I remember just just a huge amount of stress like I was a I look back at my footy career and and am amazed at just how anxious I was throughout it all and so leading into those games just wildly nervous about what a big opportunity it was and and what a potential loss would mean that was Chris Judd one of if not the best player the game has seen genuinely do not get nervous before many episodes but this week five minutes out before the Judd man walked in it hit me what are you doing but as per usual, he was nothing but class and he was very, very generous with his time. Juddy now spends his time building his investment media company, Chris Judd Invest, as well as his sporting apparel brand, Jagged. We touched on it all when he opened up about the highs and lows of his decorated career, as well as some of his ideologies that transcend the Oval. He's a seriously intelligent unit and it was an honour to sit down and learn from how he got to where he is today. And once you listen to this, you will realise why he's so successful. I cannot thank Juddy enough for his time. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. In some other exciting news, a Dylan Friends new merch drop is available at all good merch stores. And the only one I know of is dylanfriends.com forward slash shop. Check it out. Tell your mum, tell your dad. Let's go. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Strap yourselves in for some lighthearted and wholesome fun. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Chris Judd, welcome to the Dylan Friends Podcast. My friend, it's an honour and a pleasure to have you in the studio. Barker, very good to be here. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. It's episode 73, and one might think, why not earlier? That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. But let me explain this for you, because I know you're a smart man. Yes. You would not have respected me if I asked you in the top three people to come on first, because I want to master my craft first. 73 episodes has taken to get here. I want to be in prime feeling to get you on. Sort of begs the question, why not wait to episode 200? <laughs> Well, you know? then it hit me, are you ever ready for the biggest day in your life? <laughs> are you ever ready? Yeah. No, so. that's all making sense. I mean, I was hurt. I've been waiting. I thought maybe there was an issue with Telstra no. or my mobile phone provider. No. When's Bucky going to call? <laughs> yeah, I thought we had a good relationship. We did. And Very then good. it just hasn't come. You know, all the GWS boys have been on. Yeah. You know, every Tom, Dick and Harry's been on. But finally, it's, it's my turn. And I feel in many ways I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Well, if... Like I said, you get drafted right in your first year. Yes. Do you want to win a grand final in your first week or do you want to earn it and then get there? No, I think you're right. I think, I think it does it does work Means when, when players have to wait a little while. It does. Um, again, mate, thank you so much for coming to the show. What's been happening? 2020 is a strange year for you personally and the rest of the world. Um, it's been crazy, hasn't what's, it? What's the year been like for you? Uh, well, where do you start? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's pretty open-ended question. I, mean, I, went, I went to the Super Bowl in January which was magic, and that genuinely feels like five to ten years ago. So weird. So much has happened since that time. So professionally for me, it's been a, a really interesting time. I'm spending my days as an investor in, in listed equity markets, and we saw the, the quickest crash of all time in March and then the, the quickest recovery since. So it's, uh, for me, since footy, I haven't had a period like it. I, I was... Um, 
I was really obsessive when I played footy and and really competitive and then I stopped playing footy and that that obsession and competitiveness really pretty much vanished you know to a point mm. I, I I didn't have any overarching ambition to take over the world I've got four four kids and and have a wife that hasn't left me yet so all those things are, are <laughs> great honest, and really yeah, important um but it was interesting in that March period when markets just crashed so severely and um and not just that we've got a, a an apparel business that that was challenged as, as were all businesses at the time um it was the first time post footy I rediscovered that level of obsession about thing through through necessity so I, I found myself up at you know, three in the morning watching CNBC, making notes about what I needed to do the next day. And, and I actually enjoyed discovering, um, going really deep into a topic and, and becoming more obsessive with it. So professionally, it's been a really interesting learning year. Um, you know, family-wise, the kids being at home, uh, homeschooling and, and missing their friends, um, you know, it was a challenge for us as it was for so many people. We're lucky we've, we've got a a big house and and our kids are, are pretty studious and we're still able to learn via zoom particularly the the elder one um but yeah dealing with all those issues that, that anyone with with kids has, has been dealing with throughout 2020 as well yeah look it's it has been a weird year and i, I completely agree in the, in the fact that you look at 2020 and i feel like the people that have got through it well like obviously there's different scales and everyone's doing th- different things but it's all been about just the mindset of it really like getting through finding the positives like you said you've sort of rediscovered the competitiveness of of what it is because it was it was competing it was sort of do or do or die really it was and there's some brilliant examples like i look at shane delia who started providor an online platform for restaurants which has been wildly successful mm. and you know if i was a restaurateur i'd just spent bucket loads on a fit out i'd mortgage my my house to do so and i was dealt this blow of covid it would be so easy to just become wildly emotional and and you know want to seek vengeance for what's essentially an injustice that hasn't been your fault but to see people like that were, were able to, Adapt, yeah. to to pivot and, and keep their head and 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 keep trying something new and keep risking capital and and energy into a new venture when they've been dealt such a harsh hand is is really inspiring so um yeah that those stories are around for everyone if, if you look closely enough it is and i think from the last financial crisis we touched on this a bit but like uber and all these things have been created so interesting in the next 12 months to see what does arrive big time from this what's going to happen bucky have you got a tip for me um podcasting <laughs> and investing chris judd investors yeah very good are you on the asx yet because i will invest into that no no and yeah, we're, we're certainly a long way away from okay that. well i'm ready uh for it mate let's go back a little bit because yeah. um very exciting i love the early journey of your life and I suppose it's well documented Sandringham boy grew up rough around those um, streets were very ne- tough yeah, in Sandringham in the and it sort of moulded you into the man that you were today <laughs> um, skateboarding uh, a little bit of public nuisance work is this are these things actually true or do, do you play up on these a bit was it did you actually just have a skateboard did you have a spray can or I was some of, some of those are wives' tales, <laughs> some of those are true. But I was obsessed with skateboarding till the age of sixteen. Um, loved my skateboarding, skateboard every day, and then stopped it at fifteen, sixteen. Generally had to to choose between footy and skateboarding. Um, but yeah, we, we had a great time. We used to catch the trains around everywhere. We'd skateboard at Pram Bowl a lot, and um, meet a, a whole diverse range of people, and, yeah. and get up to a a diverse range of stories so had um 
had a good time growing up and pretty thankful to footy too because as a teenager, you, you've got so much energy and you're looking to sink your teeth into something. And footy, you know, when you, it is a productive thing to do. You're fit, you're, you're learning group dynamics and how to cooperate with people and how to, to share in a common dream. So that was a super positive influence on my life. And, um, you know, at that early age, I, I look around at some of the other kids that, that had a lot of energy and, and maybe didn't have a, a channel to... Mm. Or a positive channel to put that into. Ended up putting it into some some more negative channels, and and you know things have been a bit harder for him. So so footy was a really good sort of guiding light throughout that that adolescent period for me. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I uh, used to grow up a little bit on the other side of town, north side. I was a Fitzroy <laughs> boy. Fitzroy Bowl was was my sanctuary, and that you're exactly right. Like I actually got back into skating a couple of weeks ago. No, nearly broke my elbow. Like it, you don't bounce. Could you back. kick flip? I was a, I was more of a bowl skater, so okay. I wasn't a street skater. That's I'd, a no for I was, dro- <laughs> I, was, I was dropping in. So I think people who can kick flip, they were too scared to go in the bowl. Fitzroy was a very shallow bowl too, wasn't it? I don't know well, if you mean drop in on Fitzroy. No, Fitzroy no. Boy, you yes. sort of rolling. No, in no, no, Chris, no, that's that's not. <laughs> I'm talking about Peran Ramp here. It's just sort of a, it's a mild concrete hill, if I remember correctly. The DFC, the Division <laughs> Three. If they listen to what you're saying right now, you will. Yeah, it's not going to end well. Yeah, but um, Institute is a bowl at all. <laughs> Peran. For that time, and I actually don't know this, but I'm wondering because one of my favourite documentaries is All This Mayhem. That was just brilliant with the Pappas brothers. Did you ever come across them in your time? Was that around? They were around. Uh, I reckon I, I saw one of them skating just by himself with a crowd watching. Yeah. It was almost like an exhibition, but he was yeah. just having a skate um, and was always spoken about. But, you know, I was much younger and... Uh, yeah, but I just loved that documentary. It brought back so many memories made. and... Um, were you in it? No, not in it. I wasn't a great skateboarder either, unfortunately. I had some mates that were really good skateboarders and I was sort of a maybe a strong C grader in yeah, the uh, yeah. in the team. But um <laughs> it's all right. You need them. You do, you, you need your role players, <laughs> Bucker. And uh, and that was me. But that was one of the all time great documentaries, all all this mayhem. Just yeah. brilliant. We will we'll chuck that one in the show notes. That's it probably is my favourite documentary. Yeah. I, and without we don't want to spoil it because without knowing it's better to know the story without the ending because the ending's pretty crazy. So 01, you choose the right path. Um, you're playing some incredible footy. You get drafted in one of the biggest super drafts ever to this day. Pick three to West Coast. How close was that to go Hawthorne or St Kilda? Because obviously growing up in those areas, was there ever discussion to be going one or two? Or There was, and I, I don't know how close it got. It's sort of one of those stories. Uh, it's been given so much airtime. Yeah. The... the, the Hodgie and, and Ball in me in that top three. And I think it was maybe the first year that Fox footy was um, was invented or established, if you like. And I wonder if that plays a role in, in there being so much more noise around that draft than the draft before because it was the first time uh, we needed so much more AFL content and, and you know, we were a part of that becoming a, a bigger deal. So uh, I'm not sure. At the end of the day, I was just wrapped to get drafted and get an opportunity Um and in hindsight now, just, just so lucky to go to a, a brilliant club that was, was West Coast Eagles. You did. So you head over there, would have been end of 01, 02 pre-season. Um, I'm not too sure. What, what was West Coast like at that stage? Are they playing some good football? Was they going they were, well? They were pretty average. So yeah. they'd finished, well, they had pick three, so they were yeah. 16th, well, I guess, no, 14th then because yeah. 16 teams. Um and they just sacked Ken Judge. They'd had a couple of really poor years. Um, and it was John Worsfold's first year. So they'd been um, 
a struggling club, but with a lot of young players. And it's nice when you walk into a club. I mean, hey, there's there lots of other things that were fortuitous, but to walk in a club filled with young players that were just incredibly competitive. Um, and you had some really strong cultural heroes to follow. You know, Ben Cousins gets spoken about a lot for his off-field antics, but the way he prepared and trained was so far ahead of his time and uh, just completely obsessed with achieving the vision of himself and, and also what that group needed to be to, to become a, a serious contender. So, um, you know, when you're a young player and you walk in and you can model some behaviours off, off senior players that, that turn out to be really useful, it's, um, it's a huge gift to be given. And you mentioned before how competitive you were and, and you still are today. Like when I had the pleasure of, of being around you um, at, at Carlton, you could see how hard you trained. Like it was on another level. Was that inspired by... Ben Cousins, these sort of older guys at West Coast, or was it something you always did, or was it something you developed when you first got drafted? No, I just think I had some really strong lessons early on in my life that held me in really good stead. Um, so I used to be, do little athletics, like a lot of people uh, would have done, and I was always, you know, I'd make the state championships, and I'd generally come sort of last in the final, you know, for say 800 metres. So that's, that's a good effort. You're yeah. sort of eighth in the state as a, as a kid. And then one year, I was going on the same path of qualifying at the regional championships, which are about four weeks before the state championships. And I didn't really do any training. This was just um, sort of natural ability. And the old man said, well, do you want to do some training before the state championships? And I said, oh, yeah, that seems like a good idea. And so we trained every day for 30 days, which is you know, <laughs> not the best way to structure a, a training program, but yep. that's all right. And... Um, and ended up winning the state championships that year. And, and those little lessons in your life um, form your way of thinking. And, um, you know, the guy who was the national champion fell over in that race. Uh, and I often wonder if, if he had have been in it, if he had have won and I'd have come second, if that lesson would have been as strong as what it was. And, and who knows, um, maybe coming second would have been a strong enough lesson. But, um, you know, just seeing that... that that action and then the result from that in such a small period, but it was so quantifiable, um, was really important. And, and that really stayed with me. I, I was clear there and, you know, early on, even after that as a teenager, I just worked out if you wanted a different result, you needed to do something different to everyone else. Um, and that thing needed to be effic efficacious for it to, to have the desired result. So I worked that out again as sort of a 16 and 17 year old and, and that really just held true throughout my footy career. I've heard you speak a little bit about the world entitled and, and entitlement. And I think like these days that probably has a, like a negative connotation to it. And people think, you know, younger generation are entitled, people are entitled. But I've heard a really awesome opinion from yourself. And I'm not putting words in your mouth here, correct me if I'm wrong. But you said something like entitlement's actually a great thing if you've done the work. So you should take pride in being entitled because then you know you deserve it. Is that correct? It's true, yeah. I mean, all these things are like balance. So, you know, Mick Malthouse would say too much water, you drown. Not enough water, you die of thirst. And somewhere in the middle is a level of water you need to, to live. And entitlement's a bit like that. There are certainly um, people that feel they're entitled to something which they haven't earned, and that's viewed as a negative, and I, I think so it should be. But there's also just as destructive when people don't think they're entitled for good things to happen in their life and 
what happens to those people is that when something bad happens to them, they go, well, of course this would happen to me because that's, that's what always happens to yeah. me and that's what I deserve. And those people stay in, in that, that period for the rest of their life. A really healthy level of entitlement means that when something bad happens to you, you go, well, that's not how it's meant to work out for me. I've done the work. Um, I'm going to adjust and adapt and, and live to fight another day. And that's a really strong positive thing that, that people need to have. And you could see it in AFL, that, that people that had that strong sense of entitlement and people that didn't. And people that didn't have it when they'd get dropped, they'd, you know, their bottom lip would hit the floor and they'd be saying, well, of course, this, this is what always happens to me, poor me. And pretty soon in that sort of a system where it is a competitive environment, they just never fight back. Mm. But you could see the people that get dropped and rather than viewing it as a permanent uh, piece of evidence that they're doomed to fail, they, they listen to the feedback, they come up with a plan, they respond and they come back bigger and better. And it, that sense of entitlement is when it becomes a, a hugely powerful thing for people. Yeah, yeah, that, that really resonates with me, I think, like early days and especially in my career, not just in footy but just in life, I would have been that person to, to think, oh, okay, yeah, of course this is going to happen what like entitled but the opposite to what you're saying okay so i would have probably i wouldn't have kicked up a fuss but i would have been like yeah okay it's gonna happen i'm happy to be here but i think there's a pivot time when you can actually go like no when you do put in the work and whether that be in sport or athlete or in your business life then you can realize that if you do put in the work and you are entitled to think things are coming to you you actually do get them it's what and it's what you attach to and those stories you people tell themselves are, are wildly powerful um you know, provided they're based on some, some facts. Fast forward a little bit. I know we're going a bit too much here, but if we touch on everything today, it would be for a few days. Um, one thing I know you're extremely passionate about over anything was winning premierships. And it was, I'll, I'll tell a story later, but going into uh, West Coast, 05, 06, um, massive time for the club. Um, 05, you lost to the Swans, but it was one of the most famous, you know, grand finals to this day. Norm Smith in that game too. What's, what's your memories of 05? I have almost zero memories of both games, to be honest. I remember just, just a huge amount of stress. Like I, was a, I look back at my footy career and, and am amazed at just how anxious I was throughout it all. Um, and so leading into those games, um, just wildly nervous about what a big opportunity it was and, and what a potential loss would mean. Um, and just remember a few pivotal moments in the game. In, in both games, I probably remember four or five moments in, in 05 and 06 that are tattooed in my brain and the rest of the game uh, feels like a blur. I remember leading into 05 because I'd spend a lot of time, you know, almost counselling myself internally uh, and just had that view that, that um, you know, when you, you're preparing for a, a big event against other people, that's a, a stressful event, uh, coming back to the story that if you're trying to outrun a bear that's trying to eat you and your mate, you don't have to outrun the bear, you've just got to outrun your mate. <laughs> and in the case of a grand final, uh, all those 44 players that enter the arena are going to be wildly nervous. Your team doesn't have to be not nervous, they just have to be less affected by the nerves than the opposition to, to win the game. And, um, and that's how I viewed it. In that way, the nerves don't fester and feed on themselves and grow into meaning something more than they are. Um, so, you know, spent a bit of time during that week just trying to get my head around um, 
just tolerating those nerves and anxiety for, for what was such a, a huge event for a professional athlete. What were some of those mechanisms, I suppose, to... Because this is probably, and again, I wasn't there, so I can't comment, but these are the times before, I suppose, mindfulness and, you know, you had a mindfulness coach at the club. How were you training yourself to do this at that stage? I was just using other aspects of my life and creating analogies for what was coming up. So, um, you know, that was one piece of it, re the nerves. The other piece was, funnily enough, around skateboarding. And when I was a kid and I was skateboard and you were doing a trick which was, um, you know, a bit stressful. Let's say you're trying to kickflip seven stairs and that was a bit of a stretch beyond your skill set. Right? <laughs> you, maybe. What I would often do is I would roll up to it, do the trick but deliberately pull out halfway through the trick. But having done that, I could just get my head around just how steep a drop it was and how severe it was. And then the second time around, I'd have a proper go at it. Once yeah. I felt I had more of a, a mental model of, of what I was dealing with and I shouldn't make myself look like I was a better skater. I reckon five stairs was about, <laughs> was about my limit buck. So I don't, I don't want to overplay the skateboarding hand in case anyone I used to skateboard with is listening. So, so that, that was what I would do. But on the occasion when I'd go to an anxiety provoking trick and have a proper crack at it the first time, it's probably more likely to land it than doing the routine of, of, practicing it through and then really attempting it on the second time around. Yes. So that was the main idea floating man in my head in 05 um, that I just wanted to um, have a proper crack at it the first time around and not treat it as a test run and then say, oh, well, now I know what that's like. I'll have a proper crack at it next time. There was that. And then I was also really pleased that during the 05 season individually was a bit messy for me and um you know i got reported early on in the year i played some reason footy but from about round eight or nine just decided my focus was going to be on finals because we're going to play finals and i was going to do extra work every tuesday and and curry would do some of that work with me and that was around that was a horrible sessions really lactate session on a rower a grinder and a bike you know, they'd go for about 45 minutes, but they're really tough, uh, no impact. And, and that was really all based around being fitter come September. And they were, because they were pretty solid and it was a day off when you were meant to be having a rest, coupled with all the other training I was doing, by the time those finals came around, um, you know, I felt really confident that I'd, I'd done as much work, work. as possible. And, and having something you can anchor to that gives you confidence in those periods of high stress is, is super important as well. 06, um, the win, one point, obviously a huge game. And, and you spoke about it before, it's hard to remember the games, but I suppose as an onlooker and something I look at every year in a grand final is those key moments in games. Um, what were those few moments that you can remember? Is there anything that stands out in the game where you think, fuck, that was huge? Like yeah. that was a that game-defining sort of moment? Yeah, there was a couple – there was a, a contest – between Daniel Chick and Teddy Richards on uh, sort of the half back line wing, that was just a huge contest. There was um, Smother from Adam Hunter, where he then received a handball off Chicky and kicked a goal. And the, the pivotal one for me was when Daniel Kerr, you know, West Coast were up and the game was in the dying sort of minutes. And in those circumstances, you play conservatively and kick long down the line, given West Coast was up. Kerry wheeled around on his left foot, <laughs> kicked a 17-metre kick into the middle of the ground where three Sydney players were surrounding Rowan Jones 
and the kick sort of dribbled off. And it was just an incredible contest um, that Rowan Jones did to halve that contest. I think he created a stoppage, but that, that was really the contest that um, that stands out in my mind as the, the real match winner. And Rowan Jones was much loved by that team. He was, uh, in some ways, if you watch The Last Dance, Dennis Rodman was yep. the, Phil calling the backward-walking Indian. Uh, yes, something, something like that. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Rowan Jones in many ways was a bit like that for West Coast. He was a teetotaler, religious, um, you know, married young, um, but great sense of humour, you know, and, and really loved by the group and just such an amazing trainer. Like 16 beep test, you know, elite trainer. He was the only one who tackled in the team, you know, <laughs> way back when tackling wasn't, wasn't sexy wasn't or really big, measured. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was just such a nice moment that he was really the one. He wasn't... Um, you know, that team was laden with a lot of higher-profile players, but the one that really won that game was, was Rowan Jones. It was a, 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 a nice memory from, from 06. Post-win, I, I heard you were quite close to getting a premiership tattoo. Um, and it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't your historical premiership tattoo on the ankle or inside of the leg. It was a barcode. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is, so, this so, is <laughs> how happy are you didn't get so that? Or do you, are you still thinking about so, it? So, so happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was one of those things that it's, we just generally got felt with the group that the West Coast, um, what do we call it? The, you know, the, the eagle that is the, the West Coast branding, if you like, wasn't the coolest image to have tattooed. So a few people still got it. And then a couple of people got a caricature eagle. And um, I thought, well, I'd just do something different, yeah. which makes sense, and get the barcode on the back of the neck with the numbers underneath the barcode as the date for the game. Oh. And God, oh, oh, thank God we didn't go How ahead How close on. were we? Do I thank God we didn't pull the trigger yeah. on that. I reckon post-Mad Monday felt like I was pretty close. Because that, like, that would be pretty visible. It's, on it's your... almost you'd have to scrape it off, wouldn't yeah. you? You'd have to get the laser tattoo removal by oh. now to eradicate it. So, um Thank God for that, hey. And there's a lesson for the kids there. Yeah. Just, just think about it. <laughs> think about it. Just be careful. And I think uh, it's well documented with this, but you don't put uh, bumper stickers on Ferraris, do you? That's right. Buddy. Yeah, I like we, it. We moved that on. Um, after the premiership, I suppose that was the start of time when you started probably thinking, well, I don't know, what, what was your next moves from that? You went back to West Coast, obviously. Was the discussions there thinking about coming home? How did that actually play out? I know it's well documented from a media perspective, but... I sort of always saw my life back in Melbourne. Um, and mind you, sorry to interrupt, this is probably a time really when players didn't really request trades home. Was that, was it, would you say that was a thing? Like big name players? Yeah, I mean, Buckley did, but he did that straight away. But yeah, it was rarer. You know, these days players are requesting trades a lot or getting yeah. moved on for free agency and, and whatnot. Like back, this was very big news. Yeah. So it was... Um yeah, I mean, I guess that's how I, I saw my life always being back in Melbourne. And I thought six years was a stage where I didn't want to come back and treat the second club like a, a super fun sort of arrangement where you play a year or two and um, don't try and have a meaningful impact at that second place and, and just establish your life. And I also thought the longer I stayed in Perth, um, just the harder it was going to be to move because you get to the end of your career and your networks and job opportunities are set up in one state. You go from what was already a, a period of huge transition 
um, you know, it just makes it all that much harder. So six years felt like a pretty even amount of time. So it's, when I signed that last contract, I thought it was likely the next one would be back in Melbourne. I don't know if that would have changed if we hadn't have won a flag in 06 um, or how that would have changed because it you only know the world the way it, mm. it actually occurred. So that's how it panned out. Um, yeah, but certainly a challenging time back then and because it was unique, if you like, for high-profile players to leave their footy clubs, there was an irrational sense of guilt of... of um, it, yeah, of, of leaving people that you, you really do love in, in your teammates and other people at, at, at that footy club, um, of leaving them high and dry. But uh, rationally, I knew that, you know, loyalty is a funny thing. You can be loyal to lots of different aspects of your life, whether it's football or family mm. or your profession. And sometimes those those different parts of your life are in conflict. Um, so that that's how it all played out. But yeah, it, was a, it felt like a big event at the time for a 23, 24-year-old. And whilst a lot of West Coast fans were... We're pissed off at the time. They're pretty happy now and they got JK and a, a bit of other. So I don't hear too much complaining out of the, the West Coast fans nowadays. Yeah, well, the father-son for both clubs now too, which Well, that's which right, helps, Bucker. That's uh, right. And father-daughter, mind you. Um, how did that all come about, I suppose, to get into Carlton? There was obviously a lot of teams keen. You had Collingwood, Melbourne, Essendon. Yep. Was St Kilda there as well? No, Collingwood, Melbourne, Essendon, Carlton. Carlton. We spoke to. How close was anyone else or was it Carlton to, to start with or to end with? Why did you make the decision? They were all had their different strengths and, and probably Collingwood and Carlton were the two closest ones by the end of the day. Essendon at the time didn't have a coach yep. and Melbourne at the time just felt like it was going to be a struggle for them to um, spend enough on their footy department to, to create a, a football program that could, could compete. Um, and at the end it felt with Carlton I could – you know, the hope was to really replicate the West Coast journey where you, you start off at a club near the bottom of the ladder and ride that journey, hopefully, to, to premiership success, which we weren't able to do in the end. Um, but those premierships, you know, are won not in the year when they're won. They're really won in the, the years preceding the actual success. And so the desire to want to be a part of that entire journey, I think Collingwood had finished third at the end of 07. That was, the, that was a real motivating driving force because I'd done that at West Coast, being a part of a group that had done that. And it was such an uh, amazing journey to be a part of. So, um, so that was the hope. And I won't say we got close, but we, you know, we played some finals and, and won a couple of finals um, along the way at Carlton. And I love that journey. I, looking back now, when you've been at a footy club and I was at Carlton for eight years, it does feel like a little bit of that club comes a part of you. So I couldn't imagine it going any other way. But yeah, at the time, it was a it was a challenging decision to try and analyse all the moving parts and work out what would fit best. I know you said earlier um, about some of your training and your work ethic and in some ways you were probably uh, a prisoner of your own work ethic in a way because I think when you left West Coast to come to Carlton, you were pretty sore. Mm. Your body was pretty cooked at that stage. Um, and this is from speaking to our good friend, Mark Homewood, mm. um, who I've been chatting with. Now, let me try and articulate this question because I don't even know if it makes sense. You worked extremely hard to get to the player you wanted to be, but nearly that was at a cost of overuse of you know your groins and, and shoulders. Mm. Do you think you needed to do that to become the player you were or was there other ways you think you could have done that? Do you think you had to break to become nearly what you were. So that's what I'm trying to say. No, I mean, I, well, I, I couldn't have done what I did as quickly if I didn't overtrain that heavily. Yep. Does that make sense? Yes. 
Um, but it would have been a much more comfortable ride if I had been a bit more patient. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I, I never look back or think no. I would have done it any differently. Um, but, yeah, I should have been a lot smarter in, in my early 20s. But, I mean, at Carlton, I struggled to train much at all. I was diligent in lots of different types of training from Pilates and things like that, but could never get the type of training uh, amounts I, I wanted in. Um, but, yeah, I, I just abused my body physically from a, a training perspective in those years from 18 to, to 23 before it effectively broke. How much, I know this is a stupid question, but how much did you actually train? How much did you push yourself? Like, how sore were you when you were playing, I suppose, in those last couple of years? Super sore, yeah. I mean, well, the West Coast training program was different. In pre-season, we'd, we'd do running Tuesday, Thursdays, and then main skills Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So you're on f- legs every day. And that was just the common practice at the time. And then I, in my wisdom, would then go and do 400s on a Saturday during the time when you, you really would thought he was crying out for did you tell the club you were doing this no, or you just did it off your own just back? did it yeah just did it um and i mean like that, that all worked and really that well competitiveness yeah and just that belief that if you want a different outcome you've got to do something differently yeah um i mean it stemmed from my first year in afl where first year players do 60 percent of the training loads and that just used to drive me wild and at the end of that year i just said i'm not putting up with this again and just decided I'd take ownership of my own training program without letting anyone at the club know. And, um, <laughs> I mean, the results were good, but the cost was significant. Um, so, I mean, that was that. And then you, you pay for that later on. So, um, yeah, later on in my career, I was sort of, but as is everyone, you know, once you play, you play north of 200, 250 games, no one's out there feeling overly comfortable. Um, I did have a view that when I had a shoulder subluxation against West Coast in round two or three of my last year, and my shoulder was really sore after that. And I remember sleeping in a, you know, there's things you train in, like yeah. a bra yeah. where your shoulder you range of motion. And yeah. I was, I got up one morning and I had a great sleep and I've been sleeping in a, what's ostensibly a bra. So um, your shoulders don't come So down. my shoulder doesn't dislocate while I'm asleep. And I, I just thought, what are you doing? Um, and I thought I was going to be sore for the rest of my life, but, but, but I haven't been. So I was really sore for 12 months when I retired. I finished with a knee reconstruction, but I had, you know, four shoulder reconstructions, a knee reconstruction, a wrist reconstruction, plus a heap of other operations. And I, I thought I'd be just really sore for the next however many years I lived. Uh, and that was true for a year. And then I just wasn't anymore. Um, and I, I feel great now. So as long as I keep exercising, um, the body and all the arthritis is, is in check for now. As you said earlier, you've at West Coast, you went from doing all this extra work, 400s on your day off, to then getting to Carlton where you don't even train before your first game. Yeah, well, I couldn't run. You couldn't run. I couldn't even run till January, um, let alone train. I think I had one training session before the last practice game. Put into that as well, you've also the captain of the club at a new club. So you haven't trained. You've had one training session, new captain of the club, and you go into round one. How then do you get the confidence in yourself because you can't do the training anymore, like the physical training on legs as you would? You've nearly had to change your whole game plan, really. Yeah, well, I found that the most stressful period of, of my footy career. Well, that other than the end, the end's always stressful for players. Um, but, yes, that was hard. I mean, you mentioned those things and just the weight of expectation. Um, 
which was justified. You know, I'd come over, I'd, I was getting paid really well. Uh, the club had given up, you know, a significant amount of in terms of trading to get me. Um, and so that carries a huge amount of expectation, as it should. That, that's how it works. So just dealing with that was really challenging. Uh, and I knew I couldn't train the way I'd want to or the, the way any professional athlete would want to. So rather than be able to do the more obvious things that are different to get a, a better outcome, I had to go a bit more abstract. And through those invests, so that, that meant, um, you know, getting into yoga, getting into uh, Pilates. I engaged a biomechanist outside the footy club who I'd see for initially for three hours per session, three times a week during that pre-season period um, called Mark McGrath. And he was just super. And it was probably more important for my mental uh, mindset than anything else. So he was, he was really important in that initial period. But I was seeing chiropractors outside the club, all sorts of different people just to try and sort out um, this groin pathology, uh, groin pathology that I had. Um, but yeah, Mark McGrath was great. So we'd do some really interesting sessions. We used to train in the top floor of Lindsay Fox's office building and we'd finish the sessions with these 45-minute intense saunas. So he used to have this um, had a view on this pine oil so that the Siberian pine can live in minus 30-degree temperatures yep. and plus 30-degree temperatures. Apparently it's a seriously resilient tree. Yep. <laughs> and anyway, it's this orange sort of pine potion and we'd finish out two and a bit hours of, you know, um, movement exercises. And then we'd slap on the pine and sit in this extreme horn, uh, sauna in our undies for 15 minutes. Then we'd go out onto the balcony for a, f- a few minutes, get some cooler air, back in the sauna for 15 minutes. And by the end of that period, 15-minute period, your head's thumping. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're not sure if you're going to make it. Like, <laughs> yeah. colours are starting to fade and... And then you go back on the balcony and, and so three 15-minute lots. And, you know, we were two sort of bald guys covered in this orange <laughs> potion, you know, dripping with sweat. And it didn't really jerry to me that there are a lot of other buildings around that were taller up than this building balcony <laughs> that we were on. We were on this roof. And then one day I looked up and there was quite a lot of people on there, you know, looking out their office window, looking, you know, we're in direct sight in our undies. Uh, yeah lathered with this orange <laughs> potion, sweating like absolute pigs. And I was surprised I didn't... In today's era, there would have been some stories going There's around about... on Instagram the, uh, everywhere. The sauna, yeah. the sauna sessions. So, um, so that was an interesting period. Um, but I think what it did do... Because I, I, that was the first... You know, that, that osteitis pubis is pretty debilitating. Yeah. That was the first time in my footy career I really did become a bit of a victim and, and become a bit of a sook. So just to... Um, create I guess a level of control and rather than just wake up each day and say oh what do you know I'm bloody sore again Mm. Um, boo hoo to actually have a a different plan about um, you know getting on top of something that was hindering um, what I wanted to do was was really important and and Mark McGrath played a great role in that oh it's it's incredible because I you know I look back now I was only a young kid but seeing some of the things that you used to do it's only probably had effect on me now and I wish I could have fathomed that earlier but your professionalism in terms of you know the Pilates and stuff you're doing at the club um was was second to none one day I'll never forget this and this is before I say what it is it's perfectly legal you were needling your own groins Mm. 
like we uh, for anyone out there when I say needling these are acupuncture needles dry needles dry needles not, not syringes not syringes <laughs> yeah just just to make sure we we make that clear um, and you know ninety percent of blokes don't want to get this done by a professional let alone themselves are these just again more things that would put that self belief in your head that you could do anything to your body well it's, it's a, that recurrent theme so. I was really attracted to things that would help your performance that people didn't want to do because that's where you get advantage. So if, you know, a massage is good for performance, but everyone likes getting massaged. So you're not going to really get an edge from getting a massage. I was really attracted to things that um, would benefit performance, but things that people didn't want to do. So I'd, I'd always train on Christmas Day because people don't want to train on Christmas Day. Yep. So um, there was lots of... You know, when you break it down in that sort of formula, it's really easy, provided you give yourself enough time for the results to compound, to get ahead of the people you, you're trying to compete against. And dry needling is one of, of those instances. Dry needling is really good when you've got hypertonic muscles, um, or tight muscles. Uh, and a lot of people don't want to do it because it's been uncomfortable and the muscle spasms and feels weird and you've got this metal bit of steel in your body. Um, and so I was drawn to it because that felt like, you know, considering I couldn't run more than other people at that stage, I would embrace things, uh, you know, other things that I could do to, to, to get an edge. So yeah, I, I used to dry needle at home. I'd take boxes on. Box same. I, I remember going to the, the chemist not that long after the Essendon, uh, supplement saga and buying a, a thing to get rid of the needles yeah. you know big yeah. yellow those big yellow buckets <laughs> yeah. and you could see it <laughs> ticking over so i'd do that at home all the time i'd, I'd still get the dry needles out every now and then now um don't try it at home for no, anyone who's listening um where's your go-to spots these days still just hip flexors and yeah. glutes yeah um yeah, I mean, there is some nuance. I, I did used to do it to my neck a little bit, and yeah. you can really puncture your lung doing that. Yeah, so dodged a, of, <laughs> dodged a couple of bullets uh, in hindsight. There's a few arteries you want to be careful of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll have those show notes on. The, yeah, get the arteries up. Yeah, yeah. We'll make sure. A couple of those other things, and they really stick into my memory now that you used to say, um, some because I was mostly doing them all the time, but you said no phones in the gym, no soft drink, no avocado or butter on toast? Yeah, well, that was an Early part on. of that was erroneous, but yeah. Okay. What were some of these other little things that you'd play mind games in your head with that you'd try and give up that other people were doing for those mini advantages? Well, I mean, they evolved, but at West Coast, it was just nothing that wasn't 99% fat-free or less. We'd go in my gob. Oh, I'd eat bread. I reckon bread had more than 1% fat. Um, but so avocado fit in that category or salmon I wouldn't eat. Um, and gee, it was lean, <laughs> but some of those fats are good for you, even as an athlete. Um, so a lot of these little plans, they weren't, they weren't great plans, but they were executed to a T. So I mean, even John Worsfold would, would talk about the SAS a lot who are in the news at the minute. Um, but the SAS had a view that, uh, it didn't matter how good the plan was. It mattered how well the plan was stuck to that. That's what led to. To success and uh, my early years were probably a bit like that the plan wasn't all that sophisticated in hindsight but it was really stuck to to a T um, but yeah the phones are a big one I, mean, I think the biggest opportunity in professional well not the biggest 
But it's harder to get edges as time goes on mm. because programs get better and better. I think um, the management of things like phones will be such a huge edge for sporting teams in the future if they decide they really want to try and take it seriously. Just around that, you know, when you walk, all, all teams talk about connection being such an important part of what they're trying to do and mental health issues are rife everywhere. You know, they're, they're, they're rife in professional sport, but they're rife everywhere. And yeah, then you walk into a locker room at footy clubs and every player's just got their head in their phone. And some of those players are getting trolled while their head's in their phone, so it's a double whammy. But even if they're not getting trolled in that, that time, they're still missing out on, a, on an opportunity to build and create connection with the people who've walked in the room, some of whom might need a G up or some of whom would just like to connect because that's what people do. Um, so I do suspect there'll be more organised management of phones and some clubs have started doing it a little bit um, in the future. Um, yeah, and I, I, think, I think those sort of smaller, seemingly smaller areas are where teams will be able to get outside returns because the big things are done pretty well mm. at footy clubs now. So that, I think you've probably answered my question in that now. If you were playing these in this time and you've grown up with phone, you've grown up with technology... Is that what would be your one percent? Would you not use these things, or is there something else that you could try and find to get an edge at, at, at a modern career? At you know today, well, there'd be all the basic things like diet and and different training yeah. and things like yeah. that. But yeah, I think I think technology is probably uh, probably the big one. I mean, I wouldn't even read newspaper articles or about football yep. for, till the last year or two of my career. Um, if football came on the news, I'd turn, I'd change the station. Um, that wasn't a wild style. That's how I lived for, for 10 years just because, um, you know, initially well, the stories were generally positive anyway, but I, I, I could feel early on in my career that, that that feeling of positivity wash over me when there was a positive story and I was just immediately aware of... Soften your resolve a bit. Well, no, not that. I was just aware that the inverse would then be true when the negative stories came and I'd be awash with a negative feeling. And why would I want to outsource my emotions to a group of people that I, I didn't know, that didn't know what I was trying to do, um, and whose motivations were about selling media content, not about producing truth? And that's not a a dig at media companies. That's that's the reality. Their job is to derive shareholder value. That's what they, by law, have to do. So they, they have to sell content and keep eyeballs attached to that content for as long as possible. I made that decision early on. I wasn't on any social media as a player until towards the end of my career when I found a jagged with a friend uh, and then it just didn't really make sense not to try and make the most of that opportunity that having a profile in sport had given me for a business that was hopefully going to be around for longer than, um, than my footy career was. So I jumped on it then, but even then, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't on it um, very often at all, yeah. No, it's very, uh, it's, yeah, thinking of it now in the modern day, I think it's definitely something to, to get an edge on, but it, it is so hard. It's, it's honestly an addiction, I think, for a lot of people. And even when I was playing footy, it's the first thing you check. You know, you want to you want to find that comfort. comfort but in, that's, yeah. the, that's the beauty that's of the part, it. Yeah. That's because there's, no, there's, there's so few things every player is doing that's potentially negative their performance. Mm. So if you find one, what an, what a gift. Yeah. What an attraction. How easy is that? Um, and this is not a view that I don't. I don't have that pervasive view that social media is bad at all. Um, it's finding the edge. It's what people aren't doing. Yeah, I, th I think it can be. I think it can be prohibitive for performance as a professional athlete. But I, that doesn't mean that I think all social media is bad at all. And the fact that I can live as an investor now, 
a lot of it is is tribute to free information that's available on the internet on things like social media but um you know i think if you don't monitor your information diet really carefully um you get just as bad an outcomes if you don't monitor you know the diet that you put in your mouth pretty carefully as well so um but yeah i, I think that's a huge a huge area for growth for um for professional athletes my one thing i really admire about you and, and i've been blessed to to listen to a lot of these things and as i said earlier I, I didn't probably understand them as much early days as i've been able to understand now um is some of your your mindset and your ideologies and some of your things that you've looked into i suppose and and you do so much now where have you developed these things like has it been something that's just happened over time is it from reading books is it from mentors how have you developed some of your beliefs and and your mindset sort of um practices i suppose yeah i think just a mixture of places from reading uh but just watching and um you know just watching what's happening in in the world and in people you know and just actually spending time thinking about different things, about group dynamics, about why something worked, why something didn't work, um, you know, reviewing things and then and then come out with things that could have been done differently. So uh, a mixture of places, but I think more importantly is, is there's a guy, Stanley Druckenmiller, who's a really good investor, the best ever, and he will say to have strong opinions but loosely held. And I think that's really important too. So... Um, you know, I would be a bit ashamed if how I viewed the world 10 years ago is how I view the world today because it means I haven't learnt much in 10 years. Um, and likewise, from the age of 17 to 27, my beliefs completely changed in that 10-year period as well. You know, and again, this is not shit-canning social media, but that, that's one of the dangers people currently have is they create this brand of themselves and your ideas and beliefs should continually evolve and change as you learn more and as more information comes across your desk and if you're constantly trying to live up to a brand you've created x number of years ago you can get really stuck and and pigeonholed so for me i'm constantly expecting and hoping that my beliefs and views on the world will will continue to evolve and change till the day i die Um, and i think that gives you a freedom to to keep learning and keep evolving as well you know the avocado is a typical example bucker Salmon, avocado? Yes, yes. And not not to be feared at all. Back on them. Yeah. In good. a big way. I think speaking of that and one thing that I've sort of come across lately and I, I think is my biggest improvement area in terms of these things and I suppose just as a business person and even just as a friend and, and whatnot is I came across this, um, I've said ideology a lot today, I don't think that's what it is, but it's a bit of a conversation about being the last person to speak in a conversation. Mm. Have you ever heard anything about this? Because I feel like you do this really well you would it's it's basically you're sitting around a table and you let every single person have their opinion and then you be the last one because sometimes i feel as my personality would be get in there first and give your opinion but then without hearing everyone else's around the table you then get to process all of what everyone else's opinions are and then by then you might it might not actually change yours by the end of it i think too there's often that like, like certainly on complex issues is often just unjustified as well like there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know or saying, yeah, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. Um, you know, people generally want to break the world down into one issue that they're passionate about and that will help ease the anxiety of the world because they can pick one issue and nothing else matters. They can focus on that. They can feel righteous against everyone else because they know what the one issue that matters in the world is. And unfortunately, there's, there's millions of things that are really important and that's what makes 
that's, that's what makes life so challenging. Um, so I think to be able to be open, to understand you don't know everything and then to understand that you've got the right to change your mind as well. Um, I think all those sorts of characteristics are, are really important. Post-footy life seems like from, from the outside it's been pretty seamless um, transition. I'm not sure if that's the case, but you've done incredibly well. You've got Jagged, which you invested in quite early, um, sporting brand, which is, is going beautifully. And also now you've got Chris Judd Invest. Layman's terms, what is Chris Judd Invest? Like, obviously, I know it's an investment company. What do you actually do? So my job, if you like, is as an investor. That's what I, I spend my days doing. Um, I felt finance media wasn't done as well in Australia as what it is overseas, and there's not as, as much of it in Australia. So things like, I mean, even Sky Business closed down in Australia. So there are fewer avenues where you could hear interesting, um, mostly fund managers speak and share investment ideas. And then from my own perspective, I'm in investment terms really young. So, um, you know, I don't want to go and I, I had a small period working for a venture capital fund post footy, but really love the freedom to be able to um, come up with my own ideas, not be restricted um, and not be working to other people's timelines. So to create a, uh, I guess a, a small business in Chris Judd Invest where I get to sit down with different investors who I really admire, um, get to listen to their ideas and, and learn from them in a small window. Um, it's probably the main driving force. Um, there's the altruistic component where I was able to learn so much through free digital content around investing, which has really given me a vocation and something I'm passionate about post footy. Um, and so I, I guess that was the, the main main sort of driving force behind it. And we've just hired a, a, a full-time staff member, an, ex, an ex-analyst. Um, so that's sort of a bit of a next step. But there's, you know, there's not a sort of a long-term plan for this is where it'll be in, in 10 years' time. Uh, it's more just born out of having a real passion for that. Um, I guess looking for an excuse to talk to people who are, are smarter than me, who I admire, um, and sort of filling those different voids for the time being. Yeah, I, I feel you, mate. That's why we've, we've got you in today. <laughs> um, but you've also got your own shows as well, Master of the Market, um, Talk Your Book, and the new one, Media 2.0 now as well. Where can we listen to your investment um, interviews and, and ideologies? Yeah, thank you for the plug, Bucker. Uh, well, you can go to YouTube, Chris Judd Invest, or the Facebook page, Chris Judd Invest. Um, or in terms of podcasts, there's Chris Judd's Master of the Market, Chris Judd's Talk Your Book, and Chris Judd's New Media 2.0. Master of the Market is a This Is Your Life type show of, a, um, of an investor. Talk Your Book is um, where I get a fund manager on and they talk to their highest conviction investment idea. And then New Media 2.0 is a joint venture between uh, Chris Judd Invest and a, 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 a ACT Capital Partners that invest in new media companies, companies like eSports or companies that monetize podcasts or, or different sort of social media businesses um and so they're, they're, you, you can listen to either of those shows wherever you find your regular podcast yeah we'll, we'll have it all in the show notes guys and girls for that one i'm sure there'll be plenty of people keen mate um it's been absolutely unbelievable to get you on today chris uh but one thing i do want to know is what is next for chris Jell? i know you'd have some goals in the future is there anything that you're setting your eyes on it's really focusing on um on the investing yeah, so I want to grow Chris Judd Invest, but really for me, um, just continuing to learn and, and grow the investing side of the business. So there's no concrete goals out there I'm, I'm tackling to, um, 
chasing down, but but really busy looking at different opportunities and, um, you know, it is a it, I th- we could be in a, a really um, huge transitional era for for what the world's going through, and you you can see some signs, um, out there for that. So I think it's a really interesting time to be an investor and and to to learn about what's happening in the world and and potentially in an era where a paradigm shift is occurring. I don't even know what that means. But it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds very exciting. Um, put in the show notes. Whatever it is, that'll go in the show notes. Um, CJ5, seriously, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. Um, I appreciate uh, you coming in for a chat. Um, someone I really admired from, from day dot and to, to have you in here, mate, it's been an absolute honour. So thank you so much. Thanks, Bucker. Loved it. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you liked it, it'd be a massive help if you could subscribe, rate and leave a review. I'll even give you a kiss. The show is produced by Dylan Buckley and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Film is responsible for audio and visual editing. Samuel Kenny Creative looks after graphics and animation. And the podcast is recorded at the Dylan Friends studio, which sounds fancy, but really a friend had a spare room at his office and I took it over. If you'd like to get in contact to suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, you can email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com, which will also be in the show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in.